chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 today. Wow, wonderful music. Good, good. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. You'll notice I'm alone today. I don't do well when I'm alone. Uh, with Ruthie and me, it, we are both one, but she's three-fourths and I'm one-fourth, not half and half. She's the one who's the greater one of the two. And so I miss her terribly when I'm not with her. She is ministering today. Ruth has two ministries that she has given herself to. One is a ministry to the ladies in the strip clubs late at night. She goes occasionally and goes in. She has learned that the ladies in the clubs often have a bad relationship with their mother, but have had a good relationship with their grandmother. And so Ruthie kind of goes in as a surrogate grandmother, ministers to them, is loved by them. And she not only ministers to them, she ministers to that whole group of people who do that ministry. Now today, she's in her other ministry, and her other ministry is to abused women. She serves at the abused women's shelter near our house, about five blocks away. And she goes, and today, what she's doing today, she's responsible for helping serve a meal to 50 abused women and their families. So that's where Ruthie is today. She's not goofing off. She is doing the Lord's work. All right, so I want you to know that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Now, you must always know the context of a verse. Always remember, a verse out of context is a pretext. That's, that's a good statement. You can make the Bible prove anything if you take verses out of context. So let me remind you of where we are. Jesus has passed the wilderness wandering experience. He has done well. He has won the victory in that. He has now come back to his home area, Galilee, which is in North Galilee, and the crowds are starting to come. He's getting ready to put together his team, so he goes to the Sea of Galilee, he finds Peter and Andrew, James and John. And now here he is. He's going across the northern part of Israel and Galilee. And the people are coming. And now let's see what he does. Now that's the context. Are you ready now? Chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Let's stop right there. Don't try to distinguish too terribly between preaching and teaching. They, uh, they overlap a lot. Preaching... I guess you would say is more like what I'm doing now, where a person proclaims, he heralds, he makes some straightforward statements. You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to give feedback, that type of thing. So preaching is the pushing of the message this way. Teaching is more of taking it apart piece by piece, a little bit more calmly, sitting down, receiving the questions and discussing. And both of them are very important to Christianity. Christianity is built on both of those, preaching and teaching. So Jesus came preaching and teaching. And he did it in the synagogues. Synagogues were small churches. Now, I'm using a Christian term for the Jewish era, all right? So don't worry about that, okay? Uh, they were small church buildings, about like this, right here. And they were the most important institution in Jewish life. When the Babylonians captured Jerusalem and took the Jews all over the world, the Jews were separated from their temple, the law, their holy city, the rabbis. They lost everything. So as they scattered all over the world, they thought, what are we going to do? So what the Jews decided was that in every town where there were at least 10 Jewish men, they would build a church building. They call them synagogues, a church building. And since there were no, rab no rabbis, the synagogues were totally in the control of the lay people, usually kind of small. And these buildings were the center of Jewish life. This is where they taught their children how to read and write. That's why the Jews have always been high on the education scale, even in the dispersia. They had their children learning how to read and write. They were gathering places for socializing, for talking about theology and religion. 
the synagogues were so successful that after the captivity was over and they all came back and the temple was rebuilt, they still had synagogues. In fact, when Jesus lived, there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. Now let me give you context there. I live in Springfield, Missouri, which is a part of Greene County, which has a population of 250,000. In Greene County, 250,000, there are 400 plus churches. So basically, Jesus had in Jerusalem these little church buildings, you know, synagogues they called them, all over Jerusalem, just like we have churches all over Greene County. Now, their worship services were very similar to a Baptist service. Forgive me for making that analogy, but it's true. Very simple. Prayer, scripture reading, a lecture, and some discussion. And any layman that showed up, since there there weren't that many rabbis, if a layman showed up and he wanted to speak, they'd say, well, sure, you're our guest speaker for today. And so Jesus, Paul, and Stephen used this to their great advantage. They could go into a synagogue, sit down, and say, may I speak today? And they could share the gospel. And Jesus, Stephen, and Paul did that until they got thrown out. It's very important that you remember that in the early days of the church, the Jews and the Christians worshipped together until the destruction of the temple. Before the destruction of the temple, the Jews and the Christians were together. They would just argue over whether or not the Messiah had come. They would still talk about the Old Testament. They'd talk about the law. They'd talk about family. They'd talk about life. And so you had Jews and Christians together. The break happened when Jerusalem was destroyed because Jesus, while he was here, had told his people, do not stay here and fight for Jerusalem when it is surrounded by armies. You see, that was the judgment of God on the nation. And had they fought the judgment of God, they would have been guilty of sin. And so Jesus said, when you see the armies around here, you leave. So when the Romans came, the Christians left. They went to the first free city, which was nearby, which was a town called Pella. They went to Pella, and when the Christians left, and the Jews stayed, and the city was destroyed, and tens of thousands of Jews were killed, the Jews said, that's it, they're traitors. No longer will they worship with us. And that was the end of the Christians and the Jews worshiping together. But until then, this was the natural place for us to go and share the gospel. Now, why am I taking time to tell you that? What is my interest in that? I'm interested in that because that's why we do church plantings, because of the synagogues. The church I was pastor of my last seven years, we gave two and a half million dollars to church planting. We planted 51 churches. And when you're in a church planting like that, people look at you kind of a sconce, and they say, what are you doing that for? And you trace it all the way back to Paul, but the question is, why did Paul do it? You've got to go back before Paul. Paul did it because that's what the Jews had done. Everywhere they went, wherever there were ten men or more, they started a church, a synagogue. I'm using Christian terms to overlay the Jewish custom, but the synagogues were where it happened. All right, now, let's go back to our text. Let's go back to verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. It brought him sick, those and pains, those oppressed demons, epileptics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. And from Jerusalem 
and Judea and beyond the Jordan. All right, let's set the, the setting here before we talk about what Jesus is doing. The top words, the words in English, that's Galilee. That's the northern part of Israel. The, 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 the screen there is Israel. Those words at the top, that's Galilee. Galilee was the backwoods where the Hicks lived, all right? That's where Jesus grew up among the country folk, all right? Now, the south part is Jerusalem and Judea. That's the state of Judea. Jerusalem is the capital city. That's where the schmuckety schmucks were. They were the uppity ups. They were the ones that ran the country. They had the government, the temple. So they were the better than thou people. In the middle, where there's nothing, that was Samaria. That was the half-breeds that the Jews hated, and they hated the Jews. And there was no contact between them until Jesus won the Samaritan woman to Christ. So they're left out of this story. You've got Galilee. You've got Judea. Then the Bible says all of Syria had heard about. Syria was the nation right above Israel, way over towards Syria, over that direction. Then they came from Decapolis, which was a city, ten cities, Decapolis, ten cities, southeast of Galilee, which they were Greek cities, because when Alexander the Great conquered the world, when he came back, he had so many soldiers who had married and had families, he knew he couldn't take them all back to Greece. So when Alexander the Great came back from conquering the world, as he came back, he always dumped off a few hundred of his soldiers wherever he could. And those ten cities were Greek cities colonized by the soldiers of Alexander the Great. Then Perea was this section down here. This goes down to Petra. Never been to Petra. It's one of the most beautiful sites in all the world. Everybody ought to go to Petra at least once. So there you have it. They're coming to Jesus from all over Galilee, all over Judea, all over Syria, the Decapolis, Perea. They're coming from all around because they have heard of this one. Is it not interesting that everywhere Jesus went, he blessed people every way he could? Jesus came from heaven, and when he came from heaven, he drew heaven with him. You want me to say that again? Thank you, I will. When Jesus came from heaven... He brought heaven with him. I wish we could do the same. I, I long for the time when people would think of evangelicals. Evangelicals is a general term for conservative Christians, people who believe the Bible, many denominations, cross denominational lines. I long for the day when evangelicals will be thought of as humanitarians rather than political combatants. Do, do you think that the people out there, when they think of evangelicals, that they think of kind, gentle, gracious people? No. You know what they think of? They think of people who have bumper stickers on their cars, who are rabid in politics, who are mad, angry. We're now the cultural hit men. We've always got some, some axe to grind. That's what they think of us as. Something has gone really bad wrong between us and them. Our master came, and he could have established a political kingdom he refused to do so. All the Jews assumed he would do so. He did not do so. And yet now we have become, 2,000 years later, in this country, political figures. Something is really wrong with that picture. Due to his healing power, the throngs, they just swarmed Jesus. In fact, Matthew uses the phrase large crowds or great multitude 30 times. They just came from everywhere. Now, it should not surprise us that news of a healer is going to spread like wildfire because in the ancient world, disease was rampant. And it just spread unchecked. There were no antibiotics. There was no ibuprofen. There were no pain pills. Wine, they hadn't learned how to distill wine yet, so it, was very, it wasn't very strong. Injuries, you often call lifelong deformities. A simple cold could kill 
Infections were fatal. Fevers were precarious. And Jesus healed them all. And people went home. After they'd been with Jesus, they went home waving their crutches. They, carried their, they rolled up their pallets. They threw away their bandages. They tore off their eye patches. But don't miss the beautiful part. Look at verse 24. Don't miss the little, the little bitty pearl that, mat, that matters to you in verse 24. Look at verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. They brought him all the sick. The healthy brought the unhealthy. Here's Matthew, years later, writing this book. He was there when it happened. He saw it. And what he remembers, without even really thinking about it, he says, I remember seeing people bringing others. I saw the healthy bringing the unhealthy. Now, there were sick people in that crowd. I'm sure they'd heard of every, every type of sick, you know, cure that you could think of. They had tried everything. They just had given up. But somebody had to step into their life and say, let's try one more time. How could a blind person come unless somebody who could see brought him? How could a person who was deaf have known there was a possibility unless somebody that was hearing would have brought them? How could a paralytic, a cripple, how could he have gotten up and moved unless somebody who could walk carried him? What about my autistic grandson who's severely autistic, 19 years old, doesn't even know who I am? What would, how would he have gotten to Jesus? Somebody who was healthy would have had to come and take him. People who were about to die, fever-ridden, somebody who's healthy had to pick him up. The epileptics, people who had mental disorders, who endured central nervous system breakdowns, Epileptics in Jesus' time lived in terror. They knew at any time they could have a seizure and they would die. They could die as a result. They wondered if they lived through the next seizure. Somebody had to convince them that it was okay to go a little bit farther away from home than they were comfortable doing. Somebody had to say, I will take you. I will go with you. The spiritually strong had to bring the demon possessed. People who have spiritual troubles, don't ever forget the most important need of humanity, is spiritual, is not political, is not social. The most important thing in the world is spiritual. People need spiritual help. And so the demon-possessed people, they came because somebody brought them. Now, now we obviously cannot force unbelievers to come physically to Jesus. None of us in the room can force an unbeliever to trust in Christ. But let me tell you what you can do. You can bring them to the throne of grace in prayer. You cannot force their bodies into this building, but you can force their presence into the very presence of God. We can bring them before His throne. I would urge you to pick one lost person and make a covenant with God that you will never let go. Very few unbelievers become believers that have been prayed for first. And know without doubt that unbelievers are not going to pray for themselves. I'm a mathematician by training, so I was thinking about this last night. I'll just figure this out. Um, if I've, I've been a Christian for 60 years, 10, 20, 30, 40, 60 years. Now, if I've prayed for myself two times a day, and you know that's a, that, that's a low number. You know, we pray for ourselves all day long. We're always asking for stuff. So I picked a low number. If I have prayed for myself twice a day, just twice a day for 60 years, that means I have prayed over 43,000 prayers for me. 43,000 for me.
Could I maybe slip in a few for some lost people? Could I slide 10 or 20 in here? Could, could we do this for them? They, they never pray for themselves. One of the reasons we don't pray for them is because we no longer believe Jesus are really saved people. You don't really believe that old mean, hard, cussing, beer drinking, all night long partier. You really don't believe God will save them. You know why Ruthie goes into the strip clubs? And why Ruthie is with the abused women today? Because she has never forgotten that Jesus wants to save people. They can be born again. Saul of Tarsus can still be smitten on the road to Damascus. Lives can still be changed. But if you ever quit believing that, if you ever finally decide this one person that you love, no, they'll never get saved. No, you don't ever go there. You must pray believing that they can be saved. Will they all be saved? No. But you must pray as they will, as if they will. Believers, blessed. Listen. I see cars coming up the 42 right there. Blessed are the lost people in those cars who know that there is a Christian that if they do go to hell someday, they'll have to crash through those Christian, that Christian's prayers. They're coming through the stop red light right now. They're getting a green light. As they come through, blessed are the ones in those cars who are lost, who know, you know, if I do go to hell, the day I go, somebody will have prayed for me. I've told you about my atheist friend, Larry. Larry has lost his mind now. He doesn't know anything about anybody. All the way to the end, till he lost his mind, there were two things he never forgot. One, he never forgot how much he hated God. And number two, he never forgot how much he loved me. Every time we were together, I'd witness to him. Every time. <laughs> he knew it was coming. I'd try to win him. He'd try to win me. Every time. But we'd do things together. Our lives intertwined. We, we loved one another. And I told Larry. I said, Larry, if you do go to heaven, you be assured. The day that you go to hell, I mean, if you do go to hell, the day you go to hell, I will have prayed for you not. Now, do you see what's happening here? We are to be like Christ. Do you see what he's doing? Physical problems, mental problems, spiritual problems. He, he's hurting for all of them. He came to end pain in body and mind and spirit. And we need Christians who give themselves to relieve pain. The Bible says that Jesus came to undo the works of the devil. In other words, everything that you can trace to the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Every problem of humanity, every problem in the human race if you will give yourself to trying to relieve some problem that can be traced to that, then you are on mission for God. You are doing the Lord's work. The greatest missionary of all time, maybe Ralph Winter. Ralph Winter said that his wife died of a cancer because some Christian failed to go into research to discover that particular sickness that came as a result of sin coming into the garden. There are some of you sitting in this room you need to give yourself to discover how to desalinate water. I was in Tanzania. If I lived to be 100, I'll never forget. A little woman with a little bitty baby down in the bottom of a riverbed, digging, digging, digging as I drive by, just trying to get a few drops of water out of that bed. Somebody, somebody in the human race needs to learn how to desalinate water, and that person may be in this room. You might be the one, and if you do it, when all the attention comes to you, 
You give all the honor and the glory to Jesus. We need Christian physicians, nurses, psychologists, counselors, researchers, school teachers, children's advocates, foster parents, adopted parents, anything you can think of that is an effort to undo what started in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, anything you can do to help that is to be on mission. And when you do that, somehow you've got to give glory to Jesus. My sweet daughter, she's one of these master teachers. Everybody wants to be like every other teacher in school, wants all their kids to be in her class, that kind of thing. She's a committed Christian, but she's in the public schools. She has to be careful. But you know what? You can find ways. There's always ways. There are always little ways. You can always somehow make sure Jesus gets credit for what you do. And we desperately need that, folks. We need to help people. We need to touch them. We need to heal them. We need to do whatever we can because Jesus in us. You know, Jesus is still beautiful. People still will flock to Jesus. If people are not flocking to us, it's because they are not seeing Jesus in us. And as long as we are theological combatants and political campaigners, they're not going to see in us the lovely, beautiful healer of Galilee. But if they will see in us the healer of Galilee, they will be irresistibly drawn to him. There's so few people in the world who care about anybody else. Anybody that cares about people just is like drawing like a magnet. Ruthie goes into those clubs. That's some of the most <laughs> downtrodden. My Ruthie, when she first started that ministry, she told me, she said, John, I'm seeing the ugly underbelly of Springfield, Missouri. Nobody cares. So when she goes in there, into the middle of a hell on earth, and she cares, it's an irresistible call. And every one of you in this room, you are called. You're among the healthy, meant to help the unhealthy. If you have a good home, you need to be ministering to people who don't have good homes. If you're healthy, you need to be ministering to people who aren't healthy. If you're good in school, you need to be tutoring children who aren't tutoring. I tutored a child for three years. You ought to be touching the hurts. By the way, by the way, this is free. I'm not going to charge you for this. That little boy that I tutored for three years, a few months after that, I was in a staff meeting, 26 ministers. I was in a staff meeting. And my, my junior high minister, middle school now, junior high minister, he raised his hand and said, Pastor, you need to know something. He said, uh, you need to know that Mason got saved at our youth retreat the other night. I thought I was going to faint. I thought I was going to fall to the floor. That's what it's all about. You, you minister to hurts and pains and troubles and everything that you can, hoping that someday you'll be able to deal with the spiritual. All right, now let's go to Matthew 5. You're not listening fast enough. You're bogging me down. <laughs> Jack your ears up a little bit. Let's go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, let's stop right there. You see the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist? John the Baptist went to one spot, preached, and they all came to him. Jesus, not only would they come to him, he would go to them. John was in one place. Jesus was always tracking down the people. He did not remain stationary and expect everybody to come to him. Our churches, our buildings, there are many churches who would be better off if their buildings burned to the ground. That's a terrible thing to say. That's an awful thing to say, but listen to me. 
There are some churches that in these walls, they're not trained to go out and win people to Jesus. They become prisons. They become hiding places. And literally, the church would be better off if they burned to the ground. All of a sudden, they looked around and said, we've got to go out someplace and do something. We've got we to make a difference in people's lives here. I, what I saw at this church last week is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anything like what you did loving the lake, ever. I mean, I've done everything. Just when you think you've done everything, you see something you haven't seen before. And so I was kind of skeptical. Oh, we'll see how that goes. That was fantastic. Because you were doing something out there. But now here's the question. What, what good is it if that's the end of it? You do the one in order to do the many. So you do it the rest of your life. You, you don't have an event and you check it off. You have a life. You have a ministry. And what you started, you continue, and you stay there, and you give your life to it until you die. You give yourself to doing something out there to help the hurts and bless the people. But then, not only do you need to learn in here what to do out there, you also need to learn in here how to act in here. I've always been told this, but it hasn't been since... Since I retired, that I found it to be true. Churches are some of the unfriendliest places in the world. And the friendliest churches are the unfriendliest churches. When you go into a church and everybody's talking to each other, and they feel like they're the friendliest church in town. We're the friendliest church in town. We just hug one another and love one another. We can't wait to see each other. When a visitor comes in and sees that, they're outsiders, they're gone, they'll never come back. The same visitor goes into a church where nobody ever shakes hands with each other. Nobody ever says hello. Nobody says, good to see you. Nobody. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, a cemetery when they walk in there. A visitor will feel more at home there than in the friendly church. So I've been in churches since I've retired, and it is awful. Many times through the years, I've always called first-time visitors, or second-time visitors, actually. Second-time visitors, thanked them for coming. And one of the most common things I heard people say was, we cannot believe you've called. We've been to churches all over town. Nobody's contacted us. Nobody said hi to us. Nobody has followed up. That's just criminal. That's criminal. Many come to our buildings and no one says hi to them except the paid personnel, the person at the door that has the bulletins it's supposed to. That means nothing to a visitor. What matters to a visitor is when they sit down and one of the ordinary folk come and begin to speak. That's why for 50 years I've preached against something that nobody's ever paid attention to anyway, so I'm going to preach about it some more. It doesn't make anybody mad because they're never going to do it. I have preached against pew ploppers. There is no reason under God's earth, under God's son, why you should come into this building and sit down before the service starts. None. Zero. I call that pew plopping. I, you know, nobody's ever paid attention to me. It's okay. That's all right. I have good self-esteem. I can handle it. No problem. But I'm going to tell you, it's wrong. It's wrong for you to come into this building before the service starts and just plop down in the pew when people are all around you. People who go to church here, you should be greeting them. If you're greeting the guests, you see, it shouldn't matter whether they're visitors or not. You should be all over this place, shaking hands with each other, just talking to one another, saying, hi, how are you doing? There should be concern and compassion running all through this building. At all times, from everybody, that ought to be who we are. Um, enough on that. A story and I'm done. Once again, nobody's ever listened to me on that, so, you know, you, that, 
free also because you're not going to do anything about it. But anyway, okay, now. Your building is helpful only if you remember what it's for. If you forget what the building is for, then what was built to give us warmth becomes something really cold and dead. Maybe my favorite story in this regard, it's an old story you may have heard before, but it's still a good story. When Shah Jahan, when his wife died, she was the darling of his life, he gave her the name Mumtazimahal, which means pride of the palace. When she suddenly died, he decided to build for her a mausoleum that would also be a temple. 20,000 workers worked on this temple for 21 years, from 1632 to 1653. 21 years, 20,000 workers to build one of the most beautiful city, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world in honor of the woman who died. But somewhere in that, Shah Jahan forgot the meaning of the building and became obsessed with the building rather than what the building was meant for. And one day, while he's overseeing the work, he's walking down a hall, and he stumbles over a wooden box. And it makes him mad. And he says, get that box out of here. Not knowing that it was his wife's coffin. See, he'd forgotten the purpose of the building. And what is the purpose of your building? It is to train you to go out like you did last week, but to do that all the time, all the time, all the time. Go out, go out. And it is in this place that we have the opportunity to show love to everyone who comes in here. Everyone who walks in here to show love. When you forget those two things, how to be taught to go and serve, how to love while here, then the building has become a burden and displeasing to God rather than a tool He can use. I think that's enough for today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll pick up right there next week. We'll start right there next Sunday morning. Now, where does the message meet you? Are you supposed to be teaching or preaching? Are you supposed to be working somewhere to help hurting people? Last Sunday, did you find your little niche and you said, you know what, I could do that. And you could do that once a month or twice a month from now on? Where does the message meet you? Is there some aspect of hurting humanity that you could give your life to? Where does the message meet you? Do you not show love to people that come in? Do you only greet the people you know? Do you actually believe that you're friendly because you greet the people you know? Let the sermon meet you there and deal with that. Deal with that. And then always in a crowd this size, it's always possible that there's someone among us who does not know Jesus. And so I always like to try to give a chance for somebody to come to know Jesus. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and the prayer does not save you, but oh, maybe the prayer will allow you to say what you've been wanting to say, what you feel the need to say. If that's true, it's okay. So if this prayer will help you express yourself, I'm going to ask you to repeat it silently as I pray it out loud, phrase by phrase. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen. Now everyone, would you look right here at me?
If you receive Jesus, we sure would like to talk to you about that, what it means. I'll be at the door saying farewell to everyone as they leave. And when I'm done, shaking hands with people. If you have questions, prayer requests, you want to join this church, I'm, I'm willing to talk with you. Uh, Pastor Michael is here. Our staff is here. We, we've got people that are willing to take time to talk. We don't want anyone to leave this building without spiritually feeling like that they have been blessed and helped. So we would love to bless you. But before we leave, let's stand and sing one final song.